Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to them about how they've built their careers, where they are now, where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. Let's get on with the show. This week's show, joined by John Cloherty, the Group Treasurer NCC Group. Now, we spoke before the show because NCC Group are a global cyber and software resilience business operating right the way across the world, advising global technology manufacturers, financial institutions, the lot. They're actually headquartered up in Manchester in the UK, got over 35 offices, 2,000 people globally, and they advise 15,000 clients worldwide about cybersecurity and everything else. John will get to that later on in the show and tell us all about it. But again, I've known John for many years. One of the stages was at Cussons with my favorite Imperial Leather Soap brand. Love that. That's how I first met John many years ago, but we've known each other, as I say. But I want to go right back to delve to the very beginning where he got into finance, accountancy, and then discovered the world of treasury. So John, as always, it's over to you, sir. It's your show. Well, hi, Mike, and thanks very much for the invitation. Pleasure. I suppose I'd go back to when I was studying my A-levels and thinking about going to university. The advice I received then was to study something that you found interesting or that you enjoy. Now, I think that advice is still very good advice today, despite the fact that it was given before the time of tuition fees came in, I guess. And for me, I chose to study politics, so completely non-financial in nature. I had a great three years at Sheffield University, but it wasn't so great when it came towards the final year and thinking about what I was going to do after university. And it was, to be honest, only a friend of mine who was studying business studies who informed me that the big accounting firms those days, certainly, because we're talking about the mid-80s, were taking non-relevant graduates, as many as they were taking relevant graduates. And I really knew nothing, or almost nothing, (laughs) about that area. But I'd always fancied myself as being reasonably good with numbers. I'd done a a maths A-level for what it was worth. But to be honest, I really didn't know what I was getting into. I managed to secure a job with KPMG. And if I'm honest, I think the main reason why they saw me as a possibly interesting candidate was because I'd spent the summer between second and third years at uni traveling and working through North America. And so they thought, oh, well, okay, he's not just ticking boxes. He's actually got something about him. He's going to do something. So that was how I, I started and did a probably what you'd call a standard ACA training contract in those days. And looking back now, I'd say that's probably still a really good starting point for many careers in finance. It's very structured. They invest a lot of time in you. They don't expect the majority of people to stay too long, but you get quite a lot out of it. I think it was quite a good way out of university and into work as well. In those days, it was it was probably the last couple of years of when they had the big intakes into the accountancy firms. So the social side was great. Uh, Everyone was studying, working hard and working during the day. So it was a good segue, I think, into the world of work. I stayed in total KPMG six years, I think. But how I managed to make that as long as I did, I managed to secure a number of internal secondments just to get different experiences. So corporate finance to do due diligence for acquisitions, insolvency work, and then some of the internal departments, marketing and training. The last secondments I did was to clients, and in those days it was Zeneca Pharmaceuticals, now AstraZeneca. They were looking for support for a couple of big project implementations for systems, um, SAP and Hyperion. And it was once I was there and I was at a client for more than a couple of weeks as you were as an auditor, I spent a few months there that I came to the conclusion that practice was really no longer for me and I needed to, to move out and move into the 
world of industry. And so that's what I did. I took her, my first role was with a now defunct organisation, BNFL, British Nuclear Fuels Limited, which is government owned and it's in the nuclear industry. So I guess nobody else was really going to touch it, certainly back in those days, what, within 10 years of the Chernobyl in 86. So it was an interesting place and it was sold to me at the time as, yeah, we're going to make this organisation much more corporate. And there was quite an influx of ACA types, experienced finance people coming into the business. So I thought, yeah, I'll give that a try. Went in the normal route as a group financial accountant, first step from practice into industry. And that was all going fine. A role came out, out at one of the sites, one near Chester. I went for that and I got that role. And that was a real step forward, I felt, for me, because that was putting you on the site leadership team, representing the finance function with total responsibility for finance for that site, proper finance team. And that's where I'd say I, I learned the nuts and bolts of running a finance team. That was a really good experience for probably just short of three years. You get to see things differently out at sites. You're no longer at a head office. You can see the politics involved. Things are not so clearly black and white. There's a lot of grey out there when you're working in day-to-day operational things. So I, I really enjoyed that and learned a lot. And I was brought back to the corporate centre for a business analysis role, which was much more strategic in scope as part of one of the divisional leadership teams. And that was interesting, but it didn't last very long, probably less than a year, because the head moved on and the subsequent person who came in to run it decided he didn't need that team. And so that's where I found myself at a crossroads in terms of where to go. I said, well, you're clearly doing quite well. You should be able to find yourself something else to do within the business. It's a large enough business to do that, I suppose. But I looked at my CV at that point and there were two obvious gaps. One was tax and one was treasury. I'd never been the most fond of tax, I'll be honest. I didn't particularly enjoy the tax exams, etc. And I had spent some time with the group treasurer in my earlier role as group financial accountant. And he was a great guy. I really got on with him and just went over for a chat. And he said, yep, John, come to treasury. You won't regret it. Got loads of stuff for you to do. It was that fortuitous nature of how I fell into treasury. I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. And to be honest, it's one of the best luckiest decisions I think I've ever made in terms of my career. I probably describe myself as an average accountant, but hopefully a bit better than that in Treasury. But when you then, you were in government-owned, so not civil service, the wrong way, but sort of government-owned organisation and Treasury there, and then you've done all the commercial stuff that you have. Was that evident at the time? Was it slightly different ethos, would you say? The culture was different, yes, for sure. I think there's probably just wasn't the push or the pressure to keep moving things forward. I think in the world of industry these days, it's adapt or die, isn't it? I don't think there was that much of that attitude in those days in the government-owned nuclear industry, it's fair to say. It was changing a lot at the time. There were, there were a lot of structural changes and it obviously became a bit of a political football as well. So it was difficult to compare, but it, it was unique is probably the best way to describe it. And then you progressed and joined Westinghouse or they're obviously related. Talk us through those moves because you made some interesting company move. You and I talked about on our pre-podcast called a variety of different industries, all related in some ways, but with different drivers. Talk us through those moves and how that came about. Again, it was lucky. I, I'd been in that treasury role at BNFL for about a year. In the background, the business had bought Westinghouse Electric, which would was an unloved subsidiary at that stage of the CBS Corporation in the US. So it was a very small part of their organization, but it was seen as strategically important. And I was offered the opportunity to go to their headquarters in Pittsburgh and basically 
become the maternity cover for some treasury manager there who was going off for a year. And that was a really difficult decision. This was a couple of months after 9-11. My wife at the time was a working woman and it was very much I would be going on my own. So it was a difficult decision to make. But in the end, I thought it was just too good to turn down. I thought, I'll try it. Why not try it? How, how bad can it be? If it is, I can always come back because it was a secondment. It turned out, never regretted it. It was a fantastic time. The people were great and it was a very different environment. American treasury, certainly back in those days, was very different to what I call British treasury. I've experienced that more recently and I see that all the time. But what do you mean by that? It works in different ways. They have, I mean, it's a continent. It's not a country. So they have the things like lockboxes to get uh, or minimize the float of money in the system, which is almost a science over there. And I think their approach back in those days, because this, of course, was pre the 2008 crisis, the US banks were, were very bullish, very aggressive and looking to sort of take over the world, the Bank of America's, the cities of the world. It was, a, it was an interesting time. The guy I went to work out there for was, again, very different. The guy at BNFL was very traditional, whereas the guy in America was actually a Chilean fighter pilot. And it just brought a completely different approach to work and life in Treasury and much more proactive, almost aggressive in terms of taking the function forward. And so you've just been exposed to that. You, you learn a lot by osmosis, if nothing else. So that was great. It was only for a year. And half of that year, the afternoons ended up, although I didn't realize it at the time, I was planning the future because we were building a European treasury center that was needed for the Westinghouse Group, try and bring two disparate sets of businesses in Europe together. And again, this wasn't that long after the euro had come in, probably only three years or so, something like that. And basically, we planned for this European Treasury Centre. And I came back to the UK and, and ran it initially. The key project there was to get these surplus disparate funds out of these pockets in Europe, send it back to the US and repay debt, which sounds very simple. But it takes a lot of encouraging, <laughs> to say the least. And that's where the people side of the job really comes to the fore. I was having to go and meet all the European FDs around the group and the MDs as well on many occasions to convince them that this was a good idea to, to give up their cash that they've been working long towards and accept an intercompany loan instead. That was a great experience. As I say, at the end of this comment, that became my role. I ended up doing that for probably another couple of years. Gave me lots of opportunities for travel and understanding that the success of the project was built really around those good relationships that I'd, I developed. During that time as well, I did my, I'd say my one and only treasury exam. I sat the International Cash Management Certificate, as it was in those days, which I did fine in. I you know, got a distinction. That was great. And then the, the next question was immediately, are you going to go on and do the next treasury exam? And in the end, I decided against it because, well, two key reasons. One, I had two young kids under the age of three, but also I saw there was a lot of overlap with some of the accountancy exams that I'd done before at that stage. So I just put it on hold at that point, but I've never needed or necessarily had the time to go back and, and do anything more about that. I suppose at that point, that was really about setting up a new treasury centre then. And I didn't know, of course, that that would become a recurring theme throughout my career. I've done that a number of times and probably come on to those now. After that role, I realized there wasn't anything else internal to do. The group treasurer role was basically disbanded as such. 
and therefore I needed to look outside for another role. And I got a role with a metals recycling firm, which was a privately owned, family owned entity who were looking for someone to set up a new treasury function. So it sounded ideal to be, I'll bring the skills I'd already learned, but would be the number one within the organization from a treasury perspective. And the CFO was really keen and that came across. And so I, I accepted. Unfortunately, the CFO didn't last probably three months before he moved on. The next CFO lasted probably almost till the end of his probation period and he moved on. And effectively, the support to make the changes that I'd been brought in to do waned and there wasn't a real desire to do that. And so I managed to to achieve a few things. You know, we did an RCF renewal and we put in the first treasury policy for the organisation, but it was clear it, it was going to have a short shelf life from my perspective at that point. So then I moved completely to the end of the spectrum and joined PZ Cousins. PZ Cousins are FMCG PLC in the UK, but with large exposures to Africa and Asia. I think 40% of the group's revenues in those days were from Nigeria. So that brought new exposure with currency emerging markets. So opportunity to, again, bring together a treasury function. There'd been aspects of treasury being done by different departments within finance, and this was an opportunity to bring it all together. But from my perspective, it was the attraction of something new again. And as I say, Africa and Asia, I'd never had any exposure. Give that a go. And what's key there for me was where was the organization up to in its evolution in terms of treasury? Being a complete change of board, a change of guard, and probably a new 40-year-old average age board was installed and they were looking to grow the business for the first time. This was an organization that had never borrowed money from a bank, but the new board was looking to make acquisitions both organically and inorganically and to grow. So they needed some treasury expertise. So it seemed like a good fit. Again, we, we sort of quickly move through FMCG. Can you describe again for the all listeners the sort of products you did because that's, as I say, that's how we first really connected. I spoke to you before, but you really connected there and that how that then impacted on the activity you did within Treasury, as it were, and what sort of flow, some of the challenges. How did that work? Okay, so... Peter Cousins was largely a, a soaps business at the time. And traditionally, soap had been bar soap. And as you mentioned, my Imperial Leather is one of the core stable brands of the business, not just in the UK, it was known internationally. I think when I left, Imperial Leather was being made in Indonesia and Nigeria. I don't think there was any factories making it in the UK anymore. But as time went on and we made these acquisitions, business wanted to, to shift from these relatively low margin commodity type goods into higher margin products. So the first acquisition that we funded was the sanctuary business based out of Covent Garden. So things like the fake tan, that kind of thing. The Saint-Tropez, that was a separate acquisition, but one after. So these were much more high margin items with perhaps lower volumes. And so it brought with it a different type of customer. It brought a different kind of marketing required for those products. And that was quite a interesting time for the business, understanding that shift, because there was a real mixture of different types of people within the group, from the, the old PZ, if you like, to the new PZ. It was a, a really interesting mindset, and particularly because they'd never borrowed money previously, the concept of having to comply with facility covenants was just a new concept completely. Other challenges, Nigeria, I mean, it's a, it's a huge country. It's a thousand miles wide and it's a thousand miles tall. It's enormous, but it's a managed currency environment, uh, which is very volatile and can be subject to zero notice government intervention into the market. And it's heavily, obviously, reliant on the oil price 
So when you're faced with those, a lot of uncertainty and actually limited tools within Treasury to help mitigate those risks. I was there through the 2008 crisis and we saw our way through that. I think that was as difficult for everybody, for us, as it was for everybody else. And we also had a business in Greece and we went through the sovereign rating crisis there. You really pick them, don't you? You're like, oh, let's do it in Nigeria. Oh, let's create. Oh, is there anywhere else we could have a couple more challenging currencies, please? And that's what made it so interesting. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were some difficult days, but it really was a variety. And again, looking back now, that's what I've enjoyed the most, I would say, about Treasury is, is a variety I've been exposed to. And I think that's partly because the organisations I've worked for haven't been enormous. They've all been large multinationals. But they weren't so large that each element of treasury was segmented or siloed. So you, you weren't just going to be a dealer or you weren't just going to be a middle office reconciler. I got to see large parts of the business from the corporate center that spanned all aspects of treasury, which is great. And then from there, you've been there a number of years. And then I said this earlier on in the show that you move through some different there are some commonalities, but some distinct differences as well. Different sizes of companies a bit. But then how did you then move on from there? Yeah, I think I've been there probably about seven years. And then an unusual opportunity arose. You'll know this better than me, Mike. There's a few companies in the northwest of England with corporate treasury functions these days. And so what tends to happen is when one treasurer moves, you tend to get the domino effect and a few move around at the same time. Well, absolutely new, genuinely new job as a treasurer came up for a very long-winded story, but the, the group was Convertech, who were private equity-owned medical device manufacturers. To cut a long story short, the PE house thought they'd done a deal to sell the business. On the back of that, decided to get rid of all the corporate functions that were going to be replaced by the business that was the acquirer. But unfortunately, the deal fell over at the last minute, but they'd already got rid of all the corporate functions. Uh, so they had to reinstate these functions, and one of those was Treasury which had been based in the US. And the only treasury person that remained in the organization was somebody based in Chester near the shared service center. So they decided to rehire a based around Chester. And that's why it was an opportunity for me based in the Northwest. But again, it was it was very much setting up a treasury function again. It was recreating a treasury function without any handover or any knowledge. So that obviously brought its own challenges. A new CFO was brought in probably, I think, a month after I joined. And what was really key for me at that point was to agree with him what the immediate deliverables were and expectations. And it, it became clear straight away that cash visibility was a real problem. We could only see cash one week ahead at that point, And we had leverage of more than four and a half times. So cash forecasting suddenly became king and it was the most important project that we could put in. And it made a huge difference to give visibility and some control back to the organization. So it was interesting because it was very PE focused and therefore you would think cash was very high on their agenda, but because they thought they'd sold, probably the eye was off the ball at that point. So instead they decided to go down the IPO route and that took place, I think, two years after I joined. Again, you learn tons going through that kind of experience. It's a very intense period. New banks were refinanced at the same time. And it was actually quite helpful in terms of getting some of the global processes to standards that you would want. So for things like the FPPP report, we had to have these processes in place. And from a treasury perspective, when I'm trying to build it again, that was very helpful. But I guess the biggest lesson I'd say most of us who were involved in that IPO walked away with was don't forget the PE house 
is not interested day one after because there was no plan for that, really. It was all about getting to the IPO. An example, in treasury terms, all the banks that had been used for the refinancing were the PE houses relationships. The organization as such had no relationship with those banks. So we had to build those from scratch. And with a couple of billion dollars worth of debt, there were a lot of banks involved. So that was, again, a real eye-opener. The business was having to get used to that new world of meeting quarterly consensus targets. So there's just never enough resources in that scenario to take on all the added new tasks that you weren't doing before the IPO. All you can really do, I found, was to prioritize the risks that were there keep clear, regular visibility with your board. That, that's all you can do in that. I mentioned this for the listeners. You know, I let John and I had a pre-call. I knew that I've known John. He'd make an amazing guest, which he is doing. And it's great. And this is one of the reasons I shut up because it's actually nice to just hear you. It was great. You just talked there, identify the risk, do this. And sometimes on shows, I sort of say, oh, give us your checklist and stuff. And you're giving us a lot of those natural checklists. So I think a lot of treasurers in a similar situation or coming into that, they go into it, right, okay, where's, where's the fires? Okay, we've put those out, right, this is now today, let's look at the future. And just as you mentioned it there, and I didn't want to interrupt, but I thought it was worthy, you started to identify those risks. You've done that, you've identified them. How do you then mitigate them going forward? Or what's the future ethos for some of that stuff? I think the fundamental is to get a policy in place. A lot of times I've walked in and you'd be surprised at the size of the organizations that don't have a treasury policy or have a page and a half that's a treasury policy, which really is neither here nor there. And if you can get the board to sponsor that policy and be supportive of that, and then you know that everything that you're doing has to follow from that it has to be in support of that policy. Cash visibility is an obvious one. Documentation, again, it sounds simplistic, but housekeeping, have you got all the signatories up to date? Do you find when you actually really need to do something quickly that all those signatories have left the organization? So finding the right levers to make those changes is really dependent upon having the support of the board. So I found that being close to your CFO is absolutely crucial, knowing the direction they want and the slant they want to put on things and where it sits within that other myriad of priorities is absolutely key. And I think for me, and it probably represents me, is keep it simple at the end of the day. You don't need to overcomplicate these things. A lot of them can be relatively straightforward, but document, make it clear, port, feedback, and keep that loop going on a, on a regular basis. And you'll fairly quickly establish, I think, the credibility of the function. You were there for a number of years and then talk us through your next moves or bring us up to date because I don't want to run out of time today because I think we've got a couple of interesting areas to talk about. Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it, but bring, bring us more up to date. When COVID struck, for example, I was working as the interim head of tax and treasury at a oil and gas workforce solutions organisation, again, in the northwest of England. That was interesting because they were operating again in, let's call them emerging markets, but I think it might even be lower than that, some of the stand countries out in uh, Asia. And they had an interesting model. They, they had relatively tight leverage covenants, but the way their business worked was that as they started a new contract, working capital requirements increased. And so as COVID kicked in and things started to close down, it actually eased their initial issues with their headroom. As business reduced, their headroom grew. So everyone immediately is asking, well, that's great news. But then, of course, you come to the bottom of that curve and you're thinking, oh, actually, that's going to upturn at some point, hopefully, because the business has got to come back. And then 
oh, now what? That headroom isn't necessarily going to be enough because we're going to have to have all this kicking in at the same time. Whereas in the past, it had grown steadily over time. So all new covenants, all new headroom needed to be negotiated with the banks, etc. And once again, not unusually, cash forecasting came to the fore. And what I found there was that they were using a very old spreadsheet that was an industry in keeping it up to date in itself. So we quickly abandoned that and implemented a bought off the shelf system, which we implemented within eight weeks. That made a huge difference to having the confidence in the numbers and the speed of saying, well, if this changes, can we run the sensitivity? Whereas before that could take you a couple of days you could now just do that in press of a button. So that was that was hugely significant. So And that was part of a, a period where I did some contracting work. But as you said at the start, Mike, in December last year, in the middle of the shutdown, I joined NCC Group, and not as a contract, but as a permanent role as their group treasurer. Again, it's going to sound monotonous, this, but they had a relatively immature treasury function. They hadn't really invested in that part of the business to that point. For me, the attraction was, again, another completely different industry. So that's interesting of itself. But it's the fact that it's such a fast-moving and growing industry. Cyber, Cyber risks now, as everybody knows, are never out of the news. Everybody's subject to those risks. Even the issues of working from home brings more risks to every organization. I thought it was an incredibly interesting organization. And I met with the CFO and the group finance controller liked them both enormously. And it was a really easy decision. I think a week after I joined, I ended up signing an NDA and there was an acquisition sort of just starting to get underway. So the first six months have been really, really interesting, really full on. We've refinanced, we've done the acquisition, we've put in a new cash forecasting system again, actually the same one as I put in in the previous organization, which makes it a little easier. And I've recruited a, a new treasury role. So first time we've got a second person in treasury. So if I go under a bus tomorrow, it's not the end of the world the company at least. We'd miss you and I'd be careful. You <laughs> look both ways, sir. Thank you. But joking aside on that, we talked about this. You work for a technology company, cybersecurity, the future, the future. But treasury management system-wise, as you said, you'd heard some of the other podcasts and we talk about it a lot. So some people, it's a key thing and everything else. Describe that for us, maybe. I don't know how unusual this is, but I've never implemented a TMS in the 20 odd years that I've been in treasury. I think it's probably largely down to the organization's size and the volume. It's a very hard case to take to your CFO to say, I need you to spend 200, 300,000 when Treasury isn't necessarily quite at the top of his priority list in that sense, in terms of his risks or his assessment of the risks. So similarly, I've never had in my Treasury team a separate front office, back office, middle office. The Treasury teams have been too small to do that. So you work around it and you put in mitigating controls to help eliminate those risks. But you read the books, the textbooks, and you should really have all this separation. In reality, that's not always feasible or possible or even desirable in some organizations. And I know lots of organizations I've worked for would never support the investment that that would require. So how do you assess if you're right-sized for that? And you talked there very, very well about the need to have controls, effective controls and separation and all those things and compliance. But where does that start and stop in your mind? Is it a number or is it a complexity, a turnover number? Where, where does it start and finish for you? You've got this amazing experience over many different industries. Where do you judge it, if you like? I think volume of activity, of throughput and complexity are definitely two aspects of it. I go back to knowing your board. I think knowing what they need. Some boards know exactly what they need and they're very savvy when it comes to treasury issues. 
other boards I've worked with are not, and they're looking for advice. So I think you give them, if you like, the textbook advice. This is what ideally it might look like. This is what that translates to in terms of this organization. And when they pick them back up off the floor at that point, you say, well, this is how we can manage it as somewhere as a halfway house between what might be the ideal and what's actually practical and affordable for the business. What other areas have we not touched on do you think you'd reflect upon? Some of the listeners today, this isn't the top tips, we'll come to those in a minute and things like that, but you meet lots of people at different conferences and you've gone to these sessions and are you sitting there sometimes scratching your chin going, ah, really? Do you need to be doing that? We talked about technology, we touched on that and everything else. And obviously you've got through a pandemic, we're a bit bored of talking about that, I'm sure. What are the key things that you see coming at you as a treasurer that you think people also need to be thinking about? I think everybody wants to automate as much of the heavy lifting transactional type stuff as they can. And that's where I think technology can can really help and, and, and add that value. So the old 80-20 rule, you can spend only 20% of your time doing that kind of side of things and the other 80% adding some value. There's so many issues floating around in Treasury at the moment. I guess the, the latest one I picked up on is the ISO 20022, a new global message payment format that I think the banks are describing as the biggest change in 30 years that's coming towards us next year. I think at the end of next year, it's going to be in place. So there are lots of things coming along that we have to do and comply with. And some of those are forced on us by things like the rules, regulations that the banks are changing and having to comply with, and that obviously affects us corporates as customers. But there are others where the industry itself is changing. I I guess we probably won't recognize in another 30 years' time. We won't recognize it. It'll be so, so different again. But I think despite those changes, I would still go back to the the core principles or fundamentals won't change. Your job really is reducing risk and volatility. Obviously, no speculation allowed. The old sly principle. That's security first, liquidity second, and yield third, making sure you do the fundamentals. I don't think when I started in KPMG, I really truly understood the value of a good bank reconciliation. But as I've got older, those fundamentals, I just think, become more and more important to me. I think if they're done right, it means you can focus on other areas. But if they're not there, you you really are going to struggle. Exactly that. It's going to make life impossible, really. Yeah, indeed. We're going to wrap up today's show, as we always do, with a link in the show notes to your LinkedIn profile so that people can connect to you if you want them in there. Don't bother if you don't want it. That's fine. We've talked around everything. I knew it'd be just like this and be a great show and really enjoyable. But if you were to, maybe if you're advising some of the guys internally or externally, and they say, oh, you know, what, what advice would you give us? You've been these number of years in Treasury. You've talked about how it's going to evolve over the next 30 years and be unrecognizable. But certainly for the short term, if you'd like, certainly before then, What sort of advice would you give to people either entering the profession or a bit further on in their careers? What's sort of the takeaways you would give them? The big one for me, although I think I've been very fortunate in some of the roles that I've I've had, I think just say yes to opportunities. That variety is key, I think, in Treasury because you can work in one Treasury function and it can be very slanted towards debt management, say, or cash management. If you do get the opportunity to do different things, you will see and experience different ways of doing the same thing and different subjects completely. Go back to my time in, in Pittsburgh. I think that's good advice. If there's a chance, why not give it a try? I don't really think you've got anything to lose and I don't think any experience is wasted. I'd say exams are great. 
but I don't think they're necessarily critical. It's horses for courses. What best suits you? And what other experiences have you got that can substitute for that? That might mean it's not as important for you. But again, they're, they're never a bad thing to be able to put on your CV, that's for sure. The ACT is hugely respected. I think one thing that stuck with me, one of my CFOs told me, was we were sat down and we were talking about subjects, I can't recall it now. He says, you do realise, John, don't you? As of now, it's just you and me in this whole organization that know this. Nobody else does. And that hit me hard, that one. And it was a key to transparency, making sure that everybody understands and is starting from the same base point of understanding. Don't use information as power the wrong way, if that makes sense. Use it to share and to enlighten the organization. And it goes hand in hand with integrity. It has to. It really does. I think that's fundamental to when you and I first connected years ago. And it's that opposite way of thinking. I think, and there's certainly many years ago, there was that ivory towered mentality, wasn't there? Oh, I'm in treasury, look at me. Then the problem was, that was great. And you got the premium salary and everything else. But then people didn't talk to you. You were the treasury dude sitting in the corner. Yeah, that's good in some ways. But the problem is you don't get involved in lots of stuff. You lose that. That specialness is, is only special for a short period of time. You've got to integrate yourself sort of thing. You do. And if you... Now ask me difficult questions about what NCC does from a cybersecurity aspect, from a technical point of view. I'm going to struggle, to be honest, but I don't need to know that. What I need to know is the operating model of that business and what the key elements in there and particularly the levers that might affect cash flow and, and things like that. Technically, no, but you've got to be close to the, as well as the board, you've got to be close to the business in terms of what they're doing and where they're going. Otherwise, you can't be that that true business partner that you always aspire to be. Yeah, and that's the real value in, in that partnership approach. So amazing. You would be, John. Amazing to have you on the show today. Thank you for your time and been lovely. And as I say, we'll put your details in the show notes and so people can connect to you if need be. If not, don't. That's fine. I can't wait to see you in the real world at some stage for that catch-up beer and we'll, we'll talk more treasury stuff. So thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Mike. You're very kind. Thank you, sir. Hello, it's Mike here again. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you did, then maybe you want to follow the show or subscribe, depending on where you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, or another great place to listen to the show from. It's totally free and means that you'll be the first to see each and every week when we release a new show. And maybe whilst you're there, you could even leave a quick review. Reviews and ratings are among the most important metrics for a podcast to effectively rank. And as you can probably appreciate, the podcast is a lot of hard work to produce every week. It'd be amazing. Just take, say, 20 seconds, leave a quick review of my amazing guests and their great career stories. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks very much, and I can't wait to see you soon.